This episode is sponsored by the Weekend University's upcoming Day on Meaning online conference taking place on the 27th of March, 2022. In this half-day event, we'll be exploring how ancient wisdom and modern psychology can be integrated to help you uncover a deep sense of purpose and meaning in life. We'll have talks from three of the world's leading experts on the subject, including Professor Paul Bloom, Emily Esfahani-Smith and Jeremy Lent. If you're interested in the psychology of meaning and taking an evidence-based approach to building a fulfilling life and also learning how to help others do the same, then this is the event for you. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in real time, get lifetime access to the recordings, CPD certification, and connect with a community of like-minded people during the talks. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to the link bit.ly forward slash meaning 2022 and enter the code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word, when registering. Welcome back to our second session today. Um, We're going to have a talk on neurodiversity and unique thinkers from Dr. Devin McEatron. So Devin is a licensed psychologist in New York City with a private practice informed by the positive psychology and neurodiversity movements. She conducts neuropsychological assessments designed to uncover each individual's profile of strengths and weaknesses as a learner in order to provide an action plan that simultaneously develops strengths and interests while accommodating weaker skills. She's especially knowledgeable about about neurodiverse, twice exceptional and gifted learners whose strengths can camouflage their weaknesses, resulting in unexpectedly weaker performance than ability and considerable frustration, anxiety and often depression. She has a social media presence where she talks about neurodiversity, the advantages of being wired differently, challenging neuromyths, parenting, achievement and success. You can learn more about Dr. Devon's work at www.drdevon.com. So Devon, whenever you're ready, let's just get started and really looking forward to this one. Thanks so much, Niall. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all. So as as Niall said, my name is Devon McEachran. Please just call me Devon. McEachran is very hard to pronounce. And I am a psychologist in private practice in New York City. And I specialize in neuropsychological assessment, which is a, a really different sort of path in psychology than therapy, although, I, although I've recently started doing therapy as a result of the pandemic. Um, for those of you who don't know the term twice exceptional, um, twice exceptional is, is one of my specialties. It's individuals who are simultaneously intellectually gifted, but who also have a disability like dyslexia, ADHD, or autism. The, the giftedness ought to make things like school easy for twice exceptional, learners, but often their challenges interfere with achievement and they create a situation of unrealized potential. Some people who are twice exceptional have never been diagnosed as either gifted or as having a disability and may appear just to be average or low achievers. I got interested in twice exceptionality initially as the parent of my own two children who are smart, dyslexic, and have ADHD. This kind of combination of extreme strengths and weaknesses within the same person can be very frustrating. Twice exceptional individuals tend to feel that they aren't very smart, school's hard for them, and they lose self-esteem. Many feel like a failure. Anxiety and depression often follow as secondary diagnoses. 
unless their parents and teachers understand what's going on, they may make matters worse by admonishing them just to try harder. It can be hard to understand how someone can seem so smart but fail to consistently achieve their potential, at least within school. It's harder to identify and diagnose these paradoxical learners and find services and programs that address both sides of the equation, the high ability and the disability. So that's why I became a specialist in this population. I, I love a diagnostic challenge. And I also frankly just find people who are different and quirky to be super interesting and fun to be around. About 20 years ago, I began to wonder to what extent some of the extraordinary strengths I saw manifested in people identified with disabilities might actually be attributed to the very condition or conditions that everyone saw as responsible for their challenges. That it could literally be because of their disability rather than in spite of it that they had achieved success in their life. Could something called a disability actually be an ability as well providing some real quantifiable benefits. We've since learned that dyslexics tend to have strong visual spatial skills and are excellent big picture thinkers. In 2009, Thomas West wrote a book called In the Mind's Eye, Creative Visual Thinkers, Gifted Dyslexics, and the Rise of Visual Technologies that profiled Thomas Edison and Albert Einstein, among others. West provided evidence that the neurological variations that produce the reading, writing, spelling, arithmetical, and other challenges associated with dyslexia are actually in important ways incidental accompaniments to a pattern of brain organization that can also create real advantages. We've learned that people with ADHD tend to be creative and entrepreneurial. And persons with autism tend to have the ability to focus intensely on detail and become experts in an area of strong interest. Neurodiverse individuals are unique thinkers and offer unique perspectives and insights. They have strengths that we are just beginning to understand and appreciate. I believe that by supporting neurodiverse thinkers and valuing their very differences, that we can help unlock their amazing potential. I'd like to show you a three minute video I did in 2018. It was an opinion piece with Now This News, which is an online news company that generally circulates its news through Facebook. To everyone's surprise, the video was viewed over 30 million times in the first few months. It's been translated into five languages and it's still shared pretty widely today. I attribute that popularity completely to interest in the topic as my wooden delivery style was only appealing to a few autistic people who thanked me for not emoting too expressively. You may notice that the producer of the piece shares my last name. My neurodiverse daughter, Scout, has found a perfect fit career for a creative person with ADHD in online journalism. If you don't mind, I'd like to show you the three minute video now. Neurological differences like autism or ADHD are considered to be dysfunctional, disorders, and disabilities under the medical model of mental health. There's too little attention given to enabling people with neurologically different minds to be accepted for themselves, to discover and celebrate their strengths, and to find a place in society that values their differences. When most of us think of diversity, 
We think of things like race or sexual orientation, but there's a different kind of diversity you might not know about, neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is the concept that neurological differences among people should be recognized and respected. I believe it's time for this new social movement, the neurodiversity movement, to take off. Neurodiversity is a part of our genetics and of our evolution as a species. The genes for autism and ADHD are not errors, but rather are the result of variations in the human genome that have and will continue to have advantages for society. One of the genes associated with ADHD, the DRD4 gene, is known as the novelty-seeking gene. It arrived on the human evolutionary scene over 10,000 years ago. Genes associated with autism also go back more than 10,000 years. Research suggests that genetic variants linked to autism might have been positively selected during human evolution because they contributed to exceptional memory skills, heightened perception in vision, taste, and smell, a precise eye for detail, and an enhanced understanding of systems such as animal behavior. These characteristics likely remain in the gene pool today because they are still advantageous. As a psychologist advising the parents of differently wired kids, I tell parents they have a choice between trying to change the child to fit the environment and changing the environment to fit the child. There are many different microhabitats and subcultures in our world. For an individual with autism or ADHD, finding success on their own terms may come from discovering the particular niche that fits best, the niche that allows their strengths to shine and their challenges to be minimized. Individuals with ADHD tend to thrive in situations of rapid change, variety, and that reward creativity and out-of-the-box thinking. A career as a comedian, detective, entrepreneur, journalist, actor, EMT technician, or photographer could be. I'm not saying that having autism or ADHD is easy. And I don't mean to downplay the real suffering that can be caused by having a neurodevelopmental condition, disability, or difference. But it's also time the world sees the beauty and value in brain differences. Neurodiversity might be every bit as crucial for the human race as biodiversity is for life in general. My vision is for a neurodiversity-tolerant and accepting society where differences are celebrated for the depth and dimension they bring to the human condition. I want children whose brains are wired differently to be encouraged to find their niche instead of changing to fit other people's ideas of normal. Diversity in every sense makes our world a better place, and people who think differently are a huge part of that. Thank you. Let's see, where's the slide? There it is. Okay, let me move up to the correct slide here. Thanks for letting me show that. I think it can be a lot more fun to see pictures in the background than just somebody speaking the whole time. Um, now I'd like to get into the meat of this presentation. And first I'd like to define what I mean by neurodiversity. When most of us think of diversity, we tend to think of diversity categories like race, culture, gender, gender identity and expression, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, age, and so on. Basically in the past century and a half, respect for these differences has led to major social revolutions, including the civil rights movement, voting for women, equal pay, the transgender movement, and gay marriage. In each of these cases, it took some time and considerable effort for cultural shifts to occur. Broadening the concept of diversity to include neurological differences 
like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, bipolar, and other psychological and psychiatric differences leads us to the concept of neurodiversity. It's basically a new diversity category. Neurodiversity is the idea that atypical, neurodivergent, neurological development is a normal human difference that we should recognize and respect as any other form of human variation. Like other diversity categories have evolved into cultural shifts in the past, neurodiversity has been evolving into a social movement. I think it's moving kind of slowly, but picking up steam, and I'm encouraged by that. I hope and expect that there will be substantive changes in attitudes and policies as the movement grows. The term neurodiversity was coined in the late 1990s by two individuals at around the same time, Australian autism advocate Judy Singer and journalist Harvey Bloom. Judy Singer wrote a 1998 undergraduate thesis in sociology mapping out a paradigm within the disability rights movement for autism. A synopsis of her ideas was published in a chapter of a book titled Disability Discourse. Singer argued that Asperger's syndrome was not a medical condition, but rather a socially constructed category of disability. Around the same time, an American journalist named Harvey Bloom wrote an article called Neurodiversity on the Neurological Underpinnings of Geekdom that was published in the Atlantic Magazine. It made a big splash and got a lot of attention at the time. He argued that people who are neurologically different, like brainy geeks in the tech industry with Asperger's, may actually be better at the kind of thinking required to launch an innovative tech company than the rest of us. People like Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Mark Zuckerberg certainly come across as neurologically different, but we didn't have confirmed diagnoses for any of them until Elon Musk basically outed himself as having Asperger's recently on Saturday Night Live. Wasn't any surprise to me, but it was nice that he felt comfortable announcing it to the world. I expect that Melinda Gates might also have some insights to her husband Bill's lack of social skills. In any event, we know that Silicon Valley and the tech fields in general have significantly higher incidence rates of Asperger's than elsewhere. Some people think it's because it's the tech field and it draws people with that kind of background and brain. Others think there's some assortive mating going on where people with Asperger's are marrying other people with Asperger's and having children with Asperger's, but for whatever reason, there's a much higher instance um, in Silicon Valley and other tech areas. I think the journalist Harvey Bloom may have been onto something with respect to the autistic brain and the tech industry. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, the idea of neurodiversity caught hold, spreading initially through online advocacy groups. In the beginning, this was mostly within the autism community in groups like the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. But soon the idea was adopted by other disability groups as well, like CHAD, which focuses on ADHD. Now, the notion of neurodiversity includes many different psychological and psychiatric differences. In 2010, Dr. Thomas Armstrong, a psychologist with a very interesting background in the convergence of Eastern, Western and indigenous psychologies and spiritualities 
published a book called The Power of Neurodiversity, Unleashing the Advantages of Your Differently Wired Brain. It's really a terrific book. He's also written 18 other books on topics including reforming our schools and mindfulness in education. It's, Armstrong argues that just as we use the term cultural diversity and biodiversity to refer to the rich variety of social heritage and biological life, we needed a term that conveys a sense of the richness of different kinds of brains. And he felt that neurodiversity was the right word at the right time. In the past, we have tended to use negative, medicalized language to speak of brain diversity, but we've used more generally positive, naturalistic language to talk about cultural diversity and biodiversity. And we've also tended to focus our energy on fixing what's perceived as wrong or broken in individuals with differently wired brains, rather than focusing on their strengths. Evidence from brain science, evolutionary psychology, and other fields has accumulated to suggest that amid the dysfunction appearing in the brains of people with mental health labels, in some people's eyes, there are many bright spots of promise and possibility. And Armstrong argued that we should spend a lot more time exploring these positive aspects of brain diversity. Neurodiversity draws some of its vitality from the positive psychology movement. Positive psychology was created as a reaction against Freud's psychoanalytic theory and B.F. Skinner's behaviorism, both of which were seen as pessimistically focusing excessively on mental illness and fixing maladaptive behaviors. I hope this isn't wrong to say this because I'm on this side of the pond, but over here we think that positive psychology was created by an American psychologist named Martin Seligman. Might have been created at the same time in the UK, I don't know. But he uh, believed that we ought to focus psychology on helping people lead meaningful and fulfilling lives, and that focusing on strengths and cultivating what's best within people helps them facilitate this. Seligman's Positive Psychology Center defines positive psychology as the scientific study of the strengths and virtues that enable individuals and communities to thrive. There are five main premises of positive psychology that can be summarized in an acronym, PERMA. P is for positive emotions. E is for engagement. R is for positive relationships. M is for meaning. And A is for accomplishment. And I think these are very important terms to keep in mind when we're working with neurodiverse people. The tenets of positive psychology fit very well within the concept of neurodiversity, which also focuses on what's good as opposed to what's bad or weak in humans. I'd like to personalize this by telling you the stories of three neurodiverse students I've worked with over the years. I'll start with Nathaniel. Nathaniel, now 16, has Asperger's, high-functioning autism. He was a strong student academically at one of the top schools in New York City until sixth grade when he became withdrawn and anxious. Ultimately, he was diagnosed with severe anxiety disorder and autism. He had essentially been undercover as autistic until things got so overwhelming for him that he appeared on people's radar. It can be highly stressful for an autistic person to deal with the kind of sensory stimulation 
For example, loud noises and commotion of people, typical of a large, busy classroom or office. Group work can be hard. The social demands of school and work. Perfectionism, having to shift from one activity to another and engaging in open-ended tasks like report writing. Nathaniel just got to a point where he couldn't handle it anymore. And it's actually not that unusual for a bright student to have hidden disabilities that come to the foreground as the work and social pace of school increase in middle or secondary school. Nathaniel's parents withdrew him from school to address his anxiety and autism therapeutically. Then they enrolled him in a small, quiet, nurturing school for twice exceptional learners. There are actually two such schools for twice exceptional learners in New York City now, and more coming around the country. There, he got a lot of support, and he slowly recovered emotionally and academically. Nathaniel's parents brought him to me a few years later when he had decided that he wanted to re-enter mainstream education. His logic was that he wanted to go to a secondary school that provided advanced classes in the sciences and eventually to a good university where he could major in biology. So he thought he should learn sooner rather than later how to handle regular school. Nathaniel is nothing if not logical. Nathaniel's therapist worried that he wouldn't be able to handle such a big change. His parents were very concerned that he'd have another emotional breakdown. But Nathaniel was adamant in a way that only an autistic teen can be. I saw my role as supporting him in achieving his own goals, listening to what he wanted for himself and helping everyone around him create a plan focused on trying to help him get where he wanted to go. One of the best ways to help a neurodiverse individual achieve their goals is to build on their strengths, something that is often overlooked in the face of addressing their challenges. Nathaniel has many strengths, including gifted level intelligence, a highly analytical mind, a prodigious memory, a diligent work ethic, and an intensely focused interest in biology. He wants to be a scientist, and his mind is very well suited to that kind of work. We focused first on modifying the new school environment to accommodate Nathaniel, rather than trying to change Nathaniel to fit the new environment. Fortunately, the school was supportive and open-minded, and frankly, also legally required to meet his needs, so that helped. The school agreed to let him leave the classroom and find his way to his next class five minutes before the bell rang, and the, to Nathaniel, frightening and noisy crush of students piled into the hallways. He was allowed to eat lunch in a teacher's office rather than the crowded and socially intimidating cafeteria. The school agreed he could do more independent and less group work on projects. The first few weeks, he was assigned a one-to-one -one aide to help him learn school routines. His parents hired a writing tutor to work with them after school on adopting a five-paragraph essay, basically a formula for writing. A science teacher was identified as a mentor to help him find research opportunities. And a specialist was sent into the school on a quarterly basis to help his teachers develop better effective teaching and behavior management strategies for students with autism. While these adaptations required considerable effort on everyone's part, they allowed a brilliant neurodiverse teen to adapt to an environment that was altered to be more friendly to his unique wiring. Meanwhile, I counseled Nathaniel on his strengths and interests and how they might help him achieve his goals. 
Together with his parents, we identified opportunities that utilized his strengths and were consistent with his interests. Dahman, among these, was conducting scientific research. He was very eager to get into a lab. Today, I'm very pleased to report that Nathaniel is well on his way to achieving his goals. He has an internship working as a lab assistant at a marine biology facility. And his research there has led to participation in a national science fair competition. He has good grades and has his sights set on some selective universities with strong biology programs. It hasn't been easy. He's still very anxious and he still has Asperger's. His parents worry that he doesn't have much of a social life and dating is very far from even being on his agenda. He needs the support of an executive function coach to stay on top of school assignments. Writing fiction is still very hard for him and he still has emotional meltdowns when he gets overwhelmed. But it can be argued that Nathaniel is on a path toward achieving his own personal goals. Looking at those five premises of positive psychology, we can tick off at least three. He's engaged in something that is meaningful to him, that is leading toward accomplishments he can be proud of. He's still working on the positive emotions and positive relationships parts. Most psychologists and doctors have been trained under a medical model of mental health. But I think there's something important missing in this perspective. ADHD, autism, dyslexia, and other learning disabilities are seen primarily as disorders and disabilities. This is what's known as a deficit model. Someone is diagnosed as having a disorder based on a constellation of negative symptoms and behaviors. We then focus everyone's attention on treatment of the associated impairments and limitations. The individual is basically seen as broken and as needing to be fixed. While treatments and therapies to address challenges are very important, at least in my view, the individual's deficits and weaknesses are only part of the picture. What's missing in the medical model is a focus on the positives what the person can do and wants to do with their own life. Someone like Nathaniel with autism faces many challenges, but by focusing attention on his strengths and his dreams, not just on his weaknesses, he is far more likely to lead a fulfilling and self-actualized life. The words we use matter. Some people oppose the use of diagnostic terms altogether because they can be stigmatizing and categorize people unfairly. Personally, as a diagnostician, I'm not opposed to the practice of providing formal diagnoses to neurodiverse individuals if they and their family want to have a label because doing so often helps them and those who care about them understand what they need and helps them to qualify for beneficial services. In many cases, it's not possible to receive services without a diagnostic label. Also, a child or adult who has felt different and perhaps deficient while not knowing what made them different can experience a real aha moment and an awakening to new possibilities when given a diagnosis that answers their questions. A few weeks ago, I worked with a 31-year-old woman who had always felt that she was slow and stupid and who wanted to know, even as a young adult, what had been and continued to be in the way of her using her brain the way she wanted to. 
I was so impressed that she was still interested in, in, in knowing about herself and improving herself as a young adult. We found out that she had a, a not insignificant oral language disability, and she had a cathartic cry in my office when I told her she was indeed very smart and detailed all her many strengths and capabilities, but had a speech and language disability, which accounted for the challenges she had experienced in the past and continued to feel today. Armed with this new information, she's begun to feel more confident and seek ways to improve her weaker skills and also to find a career fit that better utilizes her strengths and interests. Some neurodiverse individuals decide to really embrace their label and define themselves, at least in part, by their cognitive diversity, just as people may choose to define themselves in part as being a feminist or black or gay or transgender. Other neurodiverse people may choose not to publicize their diagnoses. I feel that should be up to the individual. Either way, it's very important whenever labels are used for others to not let them summarize and limit the individual. And I guess where I see that happening most often is in schools where a child receives a label and teachers um, say that kid, the ADHD kid or the dyslexic kid or the autistic kid as if that summarizes the entire individual when it's only a very small part. It's interesting to me that so many of the labels historically applied to neurodiverse people have negative connotations. The root word dis is a word changing prefix from Greek that means bad, ill, abnormal, or faulty. When dis is placed in front of order, it becomes the word disorder. And that implies there is abnormal or faulty order. When dis is placed in front of the word ability, it becomes disability and implies bad or faulty ability. By labeling individuals using these pejorative terms, it's no wonder we tend to focus attention solely on what they do poorly. It's no wonder they begin to think of themselves as broken or abnormal. New terms have been appearing in our vocabulary to describe neurodiverse individuals who have disabilities or differences that are far more positive and affirming. These include terms like differently wired, neurodivergent, and bright and quirky. The terminology that seems to be winning out at present as our language evolves is to describe an individual as neurodivergent and a population as neurodiverse. But this is changing so quickly, I'll use a variety of terms in this presentation, and I think everybody should feel comfortable because we just don't have a set group of terms yet. I feel it seems reasonable to ask who decides what constitutes a mental disorder or disability in the first place. This is what sociologist Judy Singer was getting at when she argued that autism was socially constructed. When we step back, we can see that mental disorder is defined by the values of the culture in which the individual being diagnosed belongs. Someone with ADHD might be considered to have a disorder in 21st century America or Great Britain, but their ADHD characteristics may have been seen as advantageous in a hunter-gatherer society or in the age of exploration. I wouldn't be surprised if a large majority of explorers, adventurers, and innovators throughout history had ADHD. Even if we stay in our current times, a disability in one community might be considered an ability in another. 
That's what the journalist Harvey Bloom was getting at when he described autistic thinking as advantageous in the high-tech world. Also, there can be societal or cultural biases and prejudices at play. It was not that long ago, just prior to 1973, that homosexuality was pathologized as a diagnosable mental disorder by the American Psychiatric Association. What is seen as constituting a disorder changes over time and place. It's not fixed. One definition of disability that I especially like is from the United Nations. And what I like about it is that it recognizes the role of environment. It states that, and I quote, disability results from the interaction between persons with impairments and attitudinal and environmental barriers that hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis with others. An important shift in our thinking that is needed is to recognize it is the interaction of the person and the environment that can create problems or opportunities. The interaction of the person and the environment. I like to tell people that you can approach the problem of a poor fit between a person and their environment in one of two ways. You can either try to change the person to fit the environment, or you can try to change the environment to fit the person. And which approach is more respectful and affirming of the individual? It's pretty clear. <laughs> so let's talk about changing the environment. In biology, niche construction is the process by which an organism alters the environment to help increase its chance of survival. A beaver building a dam, a spider spinning a web, and a bird building a nest are all examples. So is migration, when animals move to find a more favorable environment in which to flourish. The concept of niche construction can be applied to humans as well. Why must humans always adapt to fit the environment they find themselves in? More than other animals, we are uniquely suited to constructing or finding environments that better suit our needs. When it comes to physical disabilities, we build ramps for wheelchairs, create accessible restrooms, use sign language, and print books in Braille. But for some reason, we're less likely to think about environmental changes when it comes to mental disabilities. I don't know why. Let's talk about how this might work. Picture an eight-year-old boy with ADHD. One approach would be to try to change his behaviors to better fit the demands of the classroom, which typically involve long periods of sitting still while attending to often dull lectures. This might be accomplished by administering medication and implementing behavior modification strategies. Or you can try to change the classroom environment to adapt to his needs. He could be given movement breaks, frequent recesses, and be allowed to move around while he thinks. The program could be constructed to provide more hands-on and experiential learning. A conscious effort could be made to introduce novelty in lessons, and his engagement could be increased through interest-based investigations. Alternatively, he might be homeschooled or enrolled in an alternative educational program, like a maker school. On the subject of whether we should change ourselves or change our environment, I offer the words of George Bernard Shaw. 
the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. I love this quote. And George Bernard Shaw ought to know he is believed to have had both dyslexia and ADHD himself. Innovations in education offer promise to the neurodivergent learner. Homeschooling can easily be configured to fit atypical learners. My son, who is neurodiverse, is with a startup in Silicon Valley that focuses on building full stack infrastructure, whatever that is, for homeschoolers. One of their funding sources is Peter Thiel, who among other things created the Thiel Fellowship, which awards $100,000 per year grants to 20 people under the age of 23 in order to spur them to drop out of college and create their own ventures. Controversial, yes, but interesting as a commentary on the perceived weaknesses in our current educational models. There are a number of many interesting innovations in education coming out of the tech industry that are well suited to neurodiverse learners. I think this may be because so many people in tech are neurodiverse themselves, feel that they didn't thrive within the constraints of traditional schooling, and are now looking for better solutions for their own neurodiverse children. Elon Musk has created a small school for his children and some other invited kids it's focused on technology and interest-based learning. Maker schools have also come out of the tech world. The maker movement was created by a combination of independent innovators, designers, and tinkerers. It's basically a convergence of computer hackers and traditional artisans. Maker education places an emphasis on problem-based and project-based learning that relies upon hands-on, often collaborative, learning experiences as a method for solving authentic, real-life problems. Because it's hands-on and project-based, maker education is particularly well-suited to neurodivergent students. I understand that a place called Penketh High School in the UK became the first school in your country to embed maker education into their curriculum. I think that was done in 2018. Also, one can build systems to accommodate neurodiversity within more traditional schools. Niche construction can take many forms. It can involve the use of assistive technology, such as books on tape, speech-to-text software, spell check, use of a calculator, and keyboarding. A human-level support can be set up whereby the student works with an executive function coach or has a one-to-one -one paraprofessional to help navigate demands. Accommodations like extra time on exams and frequent movement breaks adapt the demands of the school environment to the child. These and similar accommodations and technologies provide equal access to learning. That was one of the, the caveats of terms in the UN definition for the disabled child. I think of them as wheelchair ramps for the brains of children with learning and social disabilities. Remediation of challenges such as reading tutoring for the dyslexic child and social skills training for the autistic child address weaknesses, but strengths and interests also need to be enriched. What these modifications have in common is that they change the environment 
and enable the child equal access to learning, as opposed to trying to change the child to fit into a preordained and immutable environment. Some people think that accommodations are unfair. Why should one student get extra time while others have to finish a test under time pressure? Why should some students get to keyboard or dictate responses rather than having to handwrite them? I feel a reasonable response to the fairness argument is to ask whether it's fair for a student with a visual impairment to wear glasses or a student who is hard of hearing to wear hearing aids. Cognitive differences are as real as visual and hearing impairments. They're just not usually quite as obvious to the observer. But if we look inside with the aid of an fMRI machine, we can see that dyslexics, autistic individuals, and people with ADHD process information using different neural pathways than the neurotypical. These are very real differences. It's simply not fair to treat everyone the same. But what about life after school? Some educators and parents worry that too many accommodations provided to a child when they're in school will leave them unprepared for the real world, that they'll become dependent on these crutches, and that this dependence will hamper their development into a functioning adult. I have to be honest that I have seen this happen on a few rare occasions, but generally only when people are unrealistic or have incomplete information about the student's profile and goals. Two cases come to mind, and they both involve parents who wanted their child to graduate from college more for their own self-esteem than for their, because of their child's interests or for the type of career that might suit their child's profile. It also doesn't happen very often because the demands in the workforce are very different from those in school. There's really no other time in life than elementary and secondary school when one is expected to learn a broad curriculum that was actually created to produce workers for an economy very different from the one we have today. In addition to the breadth, it's pretty much only in school where we're tested for our memory of factual information with timed exams. David Boyes, one of the preeminent attorneys in the US, has severe dyslexia. When asked if having extra time for exams in college hindered him in real life, he responded, I quote, Life is not a timed examination. There are very few times in life when what really matters is whether you can do something in 50 minutes as opposed to 75 minutes, unquote. Unlike school where students are expected to be good at everything from math and English to foreign languages and athletics, in the workplace we can create teams diversified by individual strengths and weaknesses. In addition, people can self-select into careers that fit their brain wiring. There are successful adults with disabilities in every possible career, lawyers and poet laureates with dyslexia, tech entrepreneurs and math professors with autism, and artists and CEOs with ADHD. Neurodivergent individuals have different brain wiring. And while this may create challenges for them in school, it may provide them with advantages in their future careers, helping them survive school and get out into the real world as relatively unscathed as possible is a laudable goal. Let me throw in another case study. This is Derek. Derek has ADHD. He was adopted from Ethiopia when he was two and a half years old, 
arriving in the U.S. with malnutrition and a host of other problems. He didn't speak until he was four years old. He hasn't stopped talking since. Derek is outgoing, charismatic, funny. He's an actor, a drummer, a rapper, a hip-hop dancer, a skateboarder, an artist, a debater. He's a total charmer. He's drawn to anything involving physical activity, talking, creativity, and taking risks. He tested as intellectually gifted, though his gifts in creative areas were even more impressive, in my mind. Derek struggled to pay attention in school, receiving constant reprimands for impulsivity and distractibility. By middle school, he had internalized the belief that he was dumb and a bad kid. When I met Derek, his self-esteem was pretty low, despite all his strengths. His parents were concerned that he was beginning to identify as someone who was not good at school and was deciding he shouldn't bother trying anymore. My recommendations focused on his taking ownership of his strengths and challenges and understanding that he wasn't a bad kid or dumb. He just had a form of brain wiring that made his attention to some things harder. Derek did a course of cognitive behavioral therapy focused on impulse control. Medication for ADHD was prescribed, but only used when he felt he really needed it to get things done. Staff at Derek's school were informed about his profile, asked to support his executive function, and requested to maintain high expectations for achievement. His teachers were a lot more understanding when they realized that Derek wasn't deliberately acting up, that he really did want to do well. Because of Derek's strengths and interests in creative areas, I encouraged his parents to make plenty of room in his schedule for growth in those areas and not to focus exclusively on academic achievement, which was their tendency as academics themselves. A cartoon Derek published in his school newspaper when he was in the fifth grade illustrates that he was feeling much more on top of things. He's also got an agent now and is doing some professional acting. So I'd like to pivot a bit and discuss the strength and weakness profiles associated with various ways of being differently wired. Then I'll describe what kinds of careers tend to be a good fit for people with that type of brain. And I hope to illustrate that what may be a weakness in one environment, for example, school, can be a strength in another. And I'd like to just give a few caveats. Everyone is different and has a unique constellation of strengths and weaker skills. For example, just because someone has ADHD doesn't mean they're creative and a divergent thinker. And just because someone has autism doesn't mean they have amazing memory. These are stereotypes. Good fit and also good fit careers may be found or created in areas that we haven't even dreamed of yet. The world is changing rapidly and we can, should consider possibilities as they arise that may not have been available to earlier generations. This can be especially hard for parents and older people who think that one has to go to college and graduate school to prepare for a lifelong career in one profession as a doctor, lawyer, or business person. Pursuing what one is interested in can be as, if not more important than choosing a career based on one's strengths and weaknesses. Self-actualized people feel fulfilled doing what they're doing. And that's quite a different definition of success than externally recognized high achievement. So when in doubt, I recommend pursuing true passions and interests over what you think you're best at if your goal is happiness. I'll start with autism. Autistic people latch onto topics and tasks with intense hyperfocus. In fact, one of the diagnostic criteria for autism is fixated interests. 
If the activity or subject is one the person is passionate about, they can lose themselves in it, devoting hours of concentrated focus and hopefully productivity. Individuals on the autism spectrum are excellent systematizers. They work well with computers, numbers, schedules, maps, etc. They can often recognize patterns in things that others can't. That's why Israeli intelligence has a special unit of recruited autistic code breakers. Individuals with autism tend to be information sponges for the topics they're interested in. Facts, figures, statistics, and skills are absorbed rapidly and remembered. Dialogue and song lyrics may be easily memorized. This aptitude can help the person who is not as naturally good at interpersonal communication reenact dialogue that mimics normal conversational etiquette. This is sometimes called passing as normal. Many autistic people are highly rational and honest. They say what they mean and mean what they say. They can be very literal. There is little communicational subterfuge. They're good at correcting factual errors, picking out flaws in logic and speaking the truth, communicating in a hit the nail on the head kind of way. Individuals with autism may have trouble comprehending irony and sarcasm. Hypersensitivity to sensory stimuli like noises, sights, smells, and sounds is often a feature of autism as well. While this can be stressful when extreme, it can also allow autistics to perceive and feel things others can't. Empathy for and understanding of animal behavior is another area of strength for some on the spectrum. Contrary to what some people think, autistics don't lack empathy. They just can't pick up very well on what other humans are trying to express with nonverbal language and subtle social cues that don't explicitly say what they mean. They certainly feel emotions themselves and understand that other people and animals also feel things. And this can extend to a deep understanding of animal behavior as manifested in the autistic paddle scientist Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin has said that her autism helps her understand animals because she thinks in pictures. Since animals do not have language, their memories have to be sensory-based instead of word-based. And since she thinks that way too, she thinks that she feels that she can understand things better from their perspectives. Weaker social skills and difficulty establishing reciprocal relationships with others is another diagnostic criterion of autism. This mostly presents challenges for those on the spectrum who generally want to have friendships and feel close to others but don't know how to go about it, but there might be some small advantage in being less aware of what others are saying or thinking and missing unkind social cues. Autism is a broad syndrome in which 50 to 70% of diagnosed individuals have an intellectual disability or low IQ. Career opportunities for individuals with low IQs will generally differ from those with stronger learning aptitude. Careers for lower functioning individuals which utilize their autistic strengths include data entry, sorting, assembly, inventory control, appliance repair, lawn and garden work, and animal care and training. Higher functioning individuals with autism or Asperger's often find a good fit in the STEM fields, as I've discussed. Careers in pro computer programming, engineering, mechanics, animation, and statistics tend to work well. The TV show Silicon Valley portrayed a number of characters on the spectrum. Earlier, I described Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk as displaying autistic characteristics. 
Another TV show portraying a high-functioning autistic, The Good Doctor, is about a surgeon with extraordinary visualization abilities. Within academics, individuals with autism cluster in mathematics and the physical sciences, with rates of autism decreasing as one moves from the more factual physical sciences to the social sciences and then decrease even further as you move to the humanities. Simon Baron Cohen at Cambridge, your Cambridge, not ours, has done some interesting work in this area. This is not to say that all autistic individuals are drawn to STEM by any means. The comedian Dan Aykroyd has Asperger's and has said that his obsessive focused interest in ghosts and law enforcement led him to the idea of combining them in the movie Ghostbusters. Marty Balin, co-founder of the band Jefferson Airplane, had autism. The singer Susan Boyle, who rose to fame with her performance on Britain's Got Talent, has Asperger's. And the actors Sir Anthony Hopkins and Daryl Hannah have it as well. However, in general, careers that require a lot of interpreting social cues, like sales and marketing, tend not to be as good a fit. Now let's move on to ADHD. Having a high energy level or hyperactivity is associated with ADHD, hyperactive and impulsive type. And while this can be a drawback in the classroom or one is expected to sit still, it can be a real asset in a career that requires a lot of energy. People with ADHD don't have a global attention deficit. They have a weakness in one specific kind of attention known as central task attention. This is where sustained attention must be paid to routine tasks that have usually been externally imposed. On the other hand, ADHD is associated with strengths in two other types of attention. One type is rapidly shifting, roaming attention that enables the person to notice many different things in a short period of time. This is the basis of Tom Hartman's hunter-farmer hypothesis in which it is argued that ADHD was an evolutionary advantage for hunters, conferring superb hunting skills and a prompt response to predators. The other kind of attention that is a strength in ADHD is hyperfocus or homing attention. This enables the person with ADHD to fasten on to one thing of interest and stay with it for a long time. Of course, that can be problematic if all hyperfocus is directed toward an unproductive activity such as video gaming, but it can be an advantage in other areas. Impulsivity, a feature of hyperactive impulsive type ADHD is the tendency to act quickly on a flash of insight, intuition, or gut feeling. Individuals with ADHD do often have strong intuitions, a talent at discerning what's not being said by picking up on subtle cues that neurotypical people may miss. Entrepreneurs with ADHD like Richard Branson attribute much of their success to their intuition. Anyone who knows someone with ADHD has probably observed how nonlinear their thinking can be. Zigzagging from one thought to the next can be a roller coaster to follow, but it has the advantage of sparking new ideas and leading to original and creative connections. People who don't have ADHD think and tend to work more sequentially, finishing up one project and then moving on to the next. The linear thinker, and I'm guilty of being one, can get so caught up in accomplishing that one thing that they lose their peripheral vision and openness to spontaneity. 
People with ADHD tend to crave constant stimulation and love change and novelty. They may feel in their element amidst chaos. In fact, they may consciously create chaos in order to produce the dopamine and adrenaline boosts necessary to feed the reward centers of their brain. That's one reason why students and professionals with ADHD procrastinate until the last minute to start long-term assignments. Another attribute of ADHD is risk-taking. People with ADHD tend to make decisions most people would not dare to make. They may skydive, rock climb, heli-ski, and solo sail. A willingness to take risks is one reason so many people with ADHD become entrepreneurs and engage in extreme sports. The research data on a connection between ADHD and creativity is very strong. We think the link is because creativity is associated with the ability to broaden attention and have a sort of leaky mental filter, something people with ADHD excel at. Interestingly, the personality traits of creative people and people with ADHD are nearly identical, including independent, risk-taking, high-energy, curious, humorous, and impulsive. Resilience is also something many people with ADHD have to learn through hard knocks experience. Because they have a tendency to take more risks, they get a lot of experience with failure and hopefully learn to get themselves back up to try again. Careers that offer opportunities <clears throat> for ADHD traits to work as strengths involve at least one of the attributes I just described in the previous slide. A low tolerance for routine and need for stimulation fit well with police, detective, firefighter, and emergency room environments. A fire chief described this as follows. The intense, fast-paced world of the fire service is practically tailor-made for someone who craves constant change and adrenaline-producing situations. People with ADHD often naturally exhibit the personality characteristics, such as creativity, risk-taking and quick decision-making that are required of the best firefighters and emergency medical technicians. Careers that offer an opportunity to move around physically include itinerant journalist, videographer, park ranger, athletic coach, dancer, stunt performer, and fitness trainer. Impulsivity and creativity are advantages in the arts as a comedian, an actor, in sales, advertising, journalism, and in marketing. Also, an entrepreneur benefits from the ability to make rapid decisions in a fast-paced work environment. Entrepreneurs have to be comfortable with risk-taking too, and so do race car drivers and extreme sports athletes. There probably aren't as many professional golfers and baseball players with ADHD. There's just too much standing around in those sports. I can almost tell which children on a little league baseball field have ADHD by their wandering attention. Careers that involve repetitive, tedious work, deadlines that must be met, and require strong organizational and planning skills tend not to be as good a fit for people with ADHD. A nine to five desk job in a large corporate office, law clerk, executive assistant, event planner, and accountant are examples of careers that might not be optimal. You may have noticed that entrepreneur came up a lot. That's because it's a great fit with ADHD. When successful entrepreneurs were interviewed, 62% described themselves as having ADHD, and that's about six times the estimated rate of ADHD in the population at large. 
Let me bring in another case study of a real person to illustrate the next point. I'd like to introduce you to Sloan. She's got dyslexia. Sloan was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD when she was seven. School wasn't much fun for her and she didn't develop self-esteem from academic achievements. She even dropped out of school with her parents' support for a year as a 12-year-old because she had grown so depressed and discouraged. However, since she loved to visualize and build things and was good at it, she entered Lego competitions, had a workshop full of tools and junk for tinkering, and was enrolled in STEM programs. She was constantly building things. She took a national talent search test and scored among the top group in visual spatial skills. In secondary school, she interned at an engineering firm. Despite not being a solid, strong, traditional learner, Sloan's creative innovations and out-of-the-box thinking led to some accomplishments outside of school that helped her get into university to study physics. At university, she again gravitated to hands-on activities, not the school learning or academics as much, spending a good chunk of her time in a physics lab constructing experiments with zero-gravity mechanics. After university, she got her dream job at SpaceX working for Elon Musk. Her first year there, she designed a new type of fuel delivery system that enables longer space flights. After that innovation, the ADHD part of her wiring may have influenced her growing boredom with an industry that tends to move relatively slowly, that is aerospace, even when led by someone like Musk. So she moved on to what has become a series of tech startups and is enjoying being part of that sector. It appears to be a good fit for her combined dyslexia, ADHD, and strong visualization abilities. This is a good segue to talking about the strengths and weaknesses associated with dyslexia. There is an excellent book, I actually saw someone mention in the comments earlier, called The Dyslexic Advantage, that does a great job of addressing dyslexic strengths. Any of you who are dyslexic or who know someone who is should check it out. One of the strengths the authors describe is visual spatial thinking, which they call material reasoning. This is the ability to see things in one's mind's eye and picture how things work. It's primarily a right brain process and dyslexics do tend to be right brain dominant. Narrative reasoning, story memory, and the ability to tell stories is another dyslexic strength. Dyslexic authors, public speakers, politicians, and salespeople possess this ability. I was once sitting next to a dyslexic politician before he got up to give a big speech and was intrigued to see that he had no notes. Dyslexics often wing it quite well when they speak. Dyslexics have the ability to see the big picture and spot connections among things. There are interesting research findings suggesting that the reason dyslexics are good at big picture thinking is because they literally have longer neurons connecting different areas in the brain. Conversely, people with autism have shorter neuronal lengths, and this may explain why they're better at focusing in on details. Simultaneous processing involves integrating separate bits of information or stimuli into a whole. Sequential processing is how we linearly organize bits of information into chain-like progressions. Dyslexics tend to be better at simultaneous processing than sequential processing. They tend to perceive the whole. They may have moments of sudden insight or discovery. They tend not to be as linear. They tend to learn best when they can see the point of something and how it relates to the whole, rather than the bits and steps leading up to the big picture. Dyslexics display weaknesses in reading accuracy and speed, spelling, speed of processing, 
focusing on details and sequential processing. They usually don't have trouble with reading comprehension as much as they do with reading accuracy and speed. Careers that offer opportunities for the traits of dyslexic individuals to work as strengths involve at least one of the following, visual spatial thinking, narrative reasoning, the ability to see the big picture or interconnected reasoning and simultaneous as opposed to sequential thinking. Dyslexics can draw on their visual spatial skills in careers including architecture, like Richard Rogers, architect of the Pompidou Center, design and engineering. Additional careers that are great for visual thinkers include artist, builder, filmmaker, surgeon, pilot, physics researcher, and car mechanic. The young woman with dyslexia I described earlier draws on her visual spa spatial thinking strengths in her career. The ability to put together a good narrative story benefits dyslexics who become writers, like John Irving and poet Philip Schultz, or actors like Orlando Bloom and Jim Carrey. Walt Disney, clearly a gifted storyteller, was dyslexic. It is also advantageous in advertising. Of course, it helps if the dyslexic writer can work with a non-dyslexic, detail-oriented editor. Strengths in narrative reasoning are also helpful to coaches, counselors, lawyers, ministers, musicians, politicians, psychologists, and teachers. The ability to see the big picture is a dyslexic strength utilized by those who go into business, including CEOs and entrepreneurs like Richard Branson. Strengths in interconnected reasoning are beneficial as well for actors, chefs, inventors, and software designers. Individuals with dyslexia may wish to avoid careers relying on attention to detail, like accounting and editing, as well as positions that require they read large quantities of information quickly and accurately. However, workarounds can often be created to make some reading heavy careers work. The lawyer David Boyce, who I mentioned earlier on the subject of extended time for tests, has assistants create one-page summaries so he doesn't have to read lengthy legal briefs. Thus far, I've been talking about strengths, challenges, learning, and careers for neurodivergent people. If you're not neurodivergent yourself or interested in the topic by virtue of your work or relationships, this may not seem so relevant to you. I'd first like to point out that every one of the disabilities I've talked about is a spectrum disorder, meaning that people fall along a spectrum from exhibiting a high of many profound symptoms and characteristics to a low, a few to none. Along each disability spectrum, a person might be described as having no disability, a slight disability, a mild disability, a moderate disability, and so on. We may each think of ourselves as neurotypical, as not having any neurodiverse descriptors, but I wonder, are we? Is anyone really normal? I thought of myself as neurotypical until I started training to diagnose autism. When I practiced the facial emotion tests on myself, I discovered that I had some trouble identifying how people were supposed to be feeling based on their pictured facial expressions. Some of the faces that were supposed to look angry looked surprised to me, and others that were supposed to look sad looked neutral. So I practiced the test on my husband, and he got them all right. This, combined with a few other self-reflections, made me realize that I might have a few characteristics of autism myself. 
there are, I think there are likely to be many of you out there who have subtle subdiagnostic level symptoms of one or more of these disability categories. I think it might help us to understand our own learning and life experience better through this lens. It is a fact that most of us have uneven profiles of strength and weakness. If I tested every one of you, I would be very surprised if I didn't find that most of you have some significant strengths and some significant weaknesses. The Cattell-Horn-Carroll or CHC model is the most widely accepted and empirically grounded model of cognitive abilities. It has become so prevalent that most IQ and other cognitive tests have been changed to incorporate the theory as their foundation. I find it a very useful framework for profiling the strengths and weaknesses of any learner. The CHC model identifies over 70 different cognitive abilities, ranging from things like lower level motoric abilities like finger tapping speed to higher order thinking abilities like general sequential or deductive reasoning. There are about 30 of these abilities that contribute heavily to learning and achievement in reading, writing, math, and oral language, the school subjects. The other 40 plus aren't really required to do well in school. For example, musical discrimination and judgment is an identifiable cognitive ability that people have to varying degrees. And we certainly hope that professional musicians have this ability, but it isn't really beneficial to most learning in school. To understand a person as a learner, one can test and develop a profile of their strengths and challenges in each ability area, which is part of what I do when I work with families. Let me illustrate this idea a bit further. Instead of showing all 30 of the Cattell-Horn-Carroll cognitive abilities that impact learning, I've illustrated 11 of them on the graph above. The cognitive abilities I've plotted include the ability to understand and apply words and sentences to communicate thoughts, the ability to understand the meaning of oral communications, inductive and deductive fluid reasoning, aspects of long-term memory, specifically associative memory, rapid naming and free recall memorization, auditory processing, visual spatial reasoning, and perceptual or processing speed. The stereotype of the gifted individual is that they are uniformly strong across the board in all cognitive abilities, and thus good at everything having to do with learning. If this were true, we would expect them to have a profile that looks like the graph above, with all of the cognitive abilities involved in learning and high achievement testing in the highest ranges. I'm a specialist in testing gifted people, and I rarely see a uniformly gifted profile like this. Most people have areas of weakness as well. The flip side of the gifted stereotype is the learning disabled stereotype. A student who is weak in all of the cognitive abilities contributing to learning would be expected to have a flat profile with uniformly low cognitive ability scores in all areas, like the graph above. In reality, students with learning disabilities tend to have many strengths, both cognitive and non-cognitive. In reality, very few people are good at everything or bad at everything. People identified as intellectually gifted aren't good at everything, and people identified as having a learning disability aren't always bad at everything. Most of us have uneven profiles with strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others. I feel this is an important point to make, as many of us are guilty of black and white thinking. We may think someone is either smart or not smart, failing to appreciate that people rarely have uniform cognitive abilities. They may be smart at some things and quite weak at others. Or we may think that people are neurodiverse or normal, 
failing to appreciate that many of us have a little bit of subtle neurodiversity, if not a full-on diagnosis. Next, I'd like to address in more detail the pursuit of strengths or abilities versus interests. Strengths and abilities are one thing. They're what we're naturally good at. Interests are another thing altogether. People can be good at something they aren't very interested in. And that can lead to what looks like a successful career from the outside, but a sense of desperation inside. I have a colleague, a psychiatrist, whose patients are almost all Ivy League graduates who are successful doing what they're good at, but are unhappy in their careers because they aren't doing what they're interested in. Conversely, people can be interested in something they aren't very good at. A dyslexic fourth grader may not, at least yet, be very good at writing poetry, but they might be really interested in it and motivated enough to improve and become a Pulitzer Prize winning poet like Philip Schultz one day. Generally, I recommend that people prioritize their interests over their strengths. Going back to the tenets of positive psychology, that's how we find meaning in our work. But there are limits to how much we can improve with practice in certain areas where we lack natural talent. A person who is shorter than average height probably can't be a professional basketball player, no matter how hard they try. But we can substantially improve our abilities in many other areas if we are willing to work at it. Malcolm Gladwell popularized that idea in his book, Outliers. He claims the Beatles got to be so good because they practiced a lot, not necessarily because they were all brilliant musicians at the start. Unless someone's strengths and interests happen to align perfectly, it can be a balancing act, figuring out how and to what extent one can build one's strengths to pursue what one is really interested in. Intrinsic motivation is performing an action because you enjoy the activity in and of itself. You are pulled toward things you are interested in. Extrinsic motivation is about doing things for the sake of external rewards like prizes or to avoid punishment. It's more about pushing than pulling. Intrinsic motivation is more closely associated with achievement, life success, and happiness than extrinsic motivation. The point that I'd like to make about motivation is that interests can be enlisted to pull people toward learning. If teachers and parents take the time to find out what students are interested in, they can increase their motivation for learning. An educator named Joseph Renzulli has developed a product called the Interestalizer that matches curriculum to student interests. This kind of approach is particularly critical for neurodivergent students for whom the standard curriculum is likely to be both challenging and seem irrelevant at times. But it's also important for everyone else. We all learn better when we're generally interested in a topic. Let me summarize some points I've made so far. We need to look beyond labels and disability language to recognize the strengths within every neurodiverse individual, individuals. Labels should not blind us to possibility. We need to adopt a positive psychology perspective rather than viewing people through a medical or deficit model. We should empower the neurodivergent with the knowledge that they are wired differently, but they are by no means less than or deficient. Their diagnoses need not stigmatize them if treated with respect and sensitivity. Some may become self-advocates 
who are outspokenly proud of their differences. After all, normal and average can be kind of boring. And who's really normal anyway? One of the most interesting people I've ever spent time with is a queer, autistic, dyslexic, ADHD, Australian theater director who is so wildly creative and brilliant that he's on an entirely different planet. We need to respect, as they come of age, the right of neurodivergent teens and young adults to determine their own path in life and not try to impose parental, societal, and other expectations and limitations on them, especially not those based on their disability. We need to adapt environments to fit people rather than trying to change people to fit environments. It's a lot kinder. We need to innovate in education to create schools and programs to address the needs of neurodiverse learners and better prepare all students for our uncertain and rapidly changing future. For optimal learning, we should help the neurodivergent identify their strengths and challenges, address challenges with remediation and accommodations, and build strengths toward fulfilling careers compatible with their unique brain wiring. These words are from one of my all-time favorite ads. It was an early Apple computer ad. I hope you don't mind if I read it aloud. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can praise them, disagree with them, quote them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things, they invent, they imagine, they heal, they explore, they create, they inspire, they push the human race forward. Maybe they have to be crazy. And I'd like to insert the word, or maybe they have to be neurodivergent. How else can you stare at an empty canvas and see a work of art? Or sit in silence and hear a song that's never been written? Or gaze at a red planet and see a laboratory on wheels? And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. I think I'm six minutes early. Gosh, um, I was ready to start taking questions. Niall, is that okay? I'm, I sped up too much. So yeah, we can start the Q&A session now. Um, everybody, if you've got questions, if you just want to type them into the chat bar or tweet, tweet us at the Weekend Uni, we can uh, choose, choose questions to ask Devin. Um, we've, only, we've only got one so far, actually. It's from uh, it's from Maria. And Maria asks, would she, uh, she, she says, I would be interested to know the breakdown of those entrepreneurial statistics in terms of gender, given how ADHD can sometimes show up so differently in women, especially in terms of self-esteem, shame, and not feeling good enough. Mm -hmm. Does this impact the entrepreneurial pursuit? Maria, that's a really interesting question. Um, 
and I wish I had the answer for you. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the person who might have the answer. There, there is a UK based researcher. I think she's in London who does a lot of work on ADHD and entrepreneurs. And I, I haven't seen anything specifically on from her on women, but I haven't looked recently. And being a woman herself, I bet she's been interested in that topic. Um, if I, is there a way, Niall, to, um, for me to send something along if I find it later? Yeah, if you, if you send it to me, then I can forward it on to okay. people. Oh, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. Because you've got some great, I mean, I'm not quite sure why the, the research is more interesting coming out of the UK than the US. It probably is our granting process, but you have a lot of more interesting researchers in these um, sort of neurodiverse areas than we tend to have in the US. Um, and this this particular woman has done great work on ADHD. Um, so I'm sorry I don't know the answer to your question though, Maria. But I can I can certainly link you up with the lady who's doing the research. Yeah, I'm not sure why that why that is either, but it's interesting that there is more more of it going on in the UK. Um, uh -huh. So the next question is from uh, Martina. Is there a resource about the neuroscience of the different uh, neurodiverse presentations. I'm not could Martina el elaborate a little bit more? I'm not sure what she's I'm not sure I understand. Research on uh, the details about neural wiring is what she said in the chat there. Oh, so more at the neurological level. Um, uh, brain differences is that the details about neural wiring. Okay, I can see Martine. I see see your comment. Um, yeah, there, there. Honestly, there isn't a, a great deal of work being done in this area. Um, there, there is a, a researcher who I, I like very much named Fumiko F U M I K O Hoft H O E F T. She's at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, and also Stanford University. And she's done a lot of the neural imaging studies. She started with dyslexia and then she got interested in, um, in autism as well. So she's working at that neural imaging level. But there aren't as many people as I'd like to see doing work on the strengths of different wiring. Unfortunately, we need to have a lot more researchers um, coming into that area. But you might check out Fumiko Hoff. She also is, has an active Twitter presence. She, she will tweet fun studies and interesting studies that come out, so you can look for her there as well. Uh, sorry, Devin, could you actually just spell that again? Um, yes, it's Fumiko is spelled F-U-M-I-K-O, and her surname is Hoft, H-O-E-F-T. And she, she's a, a researcher at UCSF and Stanford. Great. Okay. Um, we've got a question here from Marion. Can you say anything about comorbidity with CPTSD and neurodivergence? CPSD being? CPTSD. Marion, could you um, let us know what, what that stands for, the acronym, please? Complex PTSD. Oh, gosh. Post-traumatic stress disorder? Um, I don't know. I'm I'm sorry, I Alexandra. I do not know whether there is has been work in that area. Um, I 
am completely at a loss there. I know more about the, the longer term, quote unquote, disabilities. Um, sorry. No problem, no problem. So we're going to the next one. Um, from Annalise, what information do you have on people with multiple neurodivergent diagnoses and how they would best find the right employment? Wow. Yeah, Annalise, that's, that's, it's so interesting. Um, I mean, I think, I, and I haven't seen, well, I, I haven't broken it out. I could break out the statistics, but most people have multiple diagnoses, not just one. Um, so if you have ADHD, you tend to have dyslexia. If you have autism, you tend to have ADHD. So it's usually not just one thing in the profile. It's pretty complex. Um, and that, of course, does make it more challenging. I mean, I, I always revert to, to trying to have people follow their interests and, and then find an environment that, that fits with their interests and their strengths. Um, so, I mean, it, it's more difficult depending on severity and, and other issues that might be going on. The hardest people to, in my experience, the hardest people to find a good launch for into a, into a happy and fulfilling career can, can be people who are on the autism spectrum. Um, I, I get a lot of phone calls from parents whose children are, are still in their basements playing video games in their early 20s. Um, and there, there are some wonderful organizations that have been um, um, coming up to help people um, find, um, find their place. Um, we have a lot of them in New York City. We have um, career uh, support and life support organizations that help people find their their spot, um, but it 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 is harder if there's a lot going on. Um, I mean, my my own kids have both ADHD and dyslexia, so that was sort of a double whammy there, and um, they had to balance, you know, their interests with with those issues. Um, I hope that addresses your question. I wish there was an. I don't know where you're based, if there's an organization that, that can can help um, figure this out. Um, that, could, that could be helpful. Definitely. Okay, so the next two questions came in almost at the exact same time, and they're quite relevant. So the first one's from Martina. Um, are neurodiverse conditions evenly distributed across cultures? And then almost immediately after, Charles asked, how do those who are divergent fair in countries with authoritarian governments that don't tolerate mm. dissent or difference. Mm. Wow, that, that could be a long, fun conversation. That's so in, so fascinating. Across cultures. Um, so I really ascribe to the view that, that disability is to some extent culturally defined. And um, one, one thing I find interesting is that in the US where we tend to value speaking quickly, doing things quickly, acting quickly, processing speed is so important. Um, whereas in many more Asian cultures, I understand that thinking, um, thinking thoroughly and thinking completely um, can be respected and valued more quickly than speed. Um, so, mm -hmm. to, so not being so fast to answer everything, but actually sitting back and being reflective um, can be valued more highly. I, I worked in India for four years um, and there, um, uh, the issue that was very hard to overcome was stigma, um, and all any sort of diagnostic or neurodiversity was really um, looked down on and, and oversimplified. 
Um, but a lot has been going on there to try to change that attitude. Um, Bollywood actors have been speaking out about their diversity, and it's 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 just farther behind than the U.S. in terms of making this more acceptable. Authoritarian cultures, I don't have any direct experience or knowledge of. I would imagine, like any other suppression of of diversity, it would make it all so much harder. Um, I mean, I particularly with the, if the educational system follows along with the um, with the authoritarian government style. Um, I think it would would probably be back to where we were as a, as a as in the U.S. probably in like. 1900 in, in some place like Korea, um, where I, I doubt there's a lot of openness to diversity. Um, it makes a huge difference, I found, when thought leaders can be outspoken about their own neurodivergence. Um, business leaders, um, uh, people like Elon Musk, um, uh, Charles Schwab, you know, Richard Branson has written books. Um, actors, um, you know, Orlando Bloom has spoken out about his dyslexia and so all those fans of, of the films that he's been in feel better about themselves. In India, that what started to turn things was there was a film called Every Child is a Star. It was about a dyslexic boy. It had one of the top Bollywood actors in it, and that created a lot of social change and acceptance. Fantastic. Um, so the next one's from Josie. Do you have any tips for people who are neurodivergent but aren't able to change their environments to fit their needs? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating because I, I often don't like to accept the status quo of can't change the environment. I mean, it, I mean maybe, maybe it's really truly impossible, in which case one has to try to adapt, I guess, um, to the environment that you're in. But I think often people can change some aspect of their environment. If not, if it, maybe it's not possible to move or to switch to a different career, um, but to at least in, enlighten um, the people around you and to try to change some of their minds to be more accepting and understanding. There, there, was, a, there was a fellow, I took a course at your Cambridge, um, UK, on psychology one summer, and, and my professor was a psychology professor, and he did a lot of work with Simon Baron-Cohen, and he said he had one client, this was a, a math professor, who... Um, was in counseling because of his problems in his marriage. And he, he came home, he would come home from work and his wife would be sitting in the living room crying. And he'd assume that she wanted her space and he'd go to his office and do his work. And the psychologist said, no, no, no. Let me give you another idea. Come home, if you see your wife crying, you don't have to understand why she's crying, but try putting your arm around her shoulder and saying, would you like to tell me about it, dear? And that one change just his being outspoke, his learning that strategy and his wife understanding that he was making an effort made a huge change in that particular relationship. So at a micro level, perhaps getting individuals with whom you're in, an, in, a, in, in relationships or in interaction to be more understanding would be one way to go if you can't change the environment. Very cool. Okay. So what advice would you give to somebody listening to this who is sort of discovering this concept of neurodiversity for the first time and then they have like an inkling that they might be somewhere kind of along the spectrum like what 
how would they go, what would the next steps for that be? Would you recommend they would go see someone like yourself to get a diagnosis or what would you mm -hmm. recommend to someone like that? Well, I think that's so exciting when, when people are interested in learning more about their themselves and their brain. It's just, it's really, really empowering. Um, I, getting a, a, an assessment from somebody like me can be expensive and, and time consuming. And I actually do have clients in, from the UK and, and abroad, other places who come to me in New York and, and I work with them, but that's a lot of commitment. Um, you might start by, um, having you know hypotheses about yourself um, if you think you might have some autism or some ADHD or some dyslexia read some of the books that that, that focus on the strengths aspects um, because I don't wouldn't want you sort of delving deeply into all those disability books um, but so for dyslexia dyslexic advantage or or that book um, uh, in the mind's eye by by white um, and for um, autism um, Oh gosh, there's a couple of good ones. Neurotribes is an interesting, it's really kind of a dense book. It's, it's a, it was written by, I, I think another UK person, uh, Silberman's coming to mind. That may not be right, but it's called Neurotribes. Yeah. Um, and then for ADHD, there's, there's a book that's not particularly well written, but what it says is good. It's, it's called ADHD Strengths. Um, or, or just not, you don't go to a book, go to a website, you know, if, if that's more interesting. I have been so struck over the years with how accurate parents are about their children and people are about themselves. So if it's it's you don't necessarily need a teacher or a psychologist like me to 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 give an opinion. If you think that you might have something going on, you probably have something going on. <laughs> you know, you're the one that lives in your own experience, so you know better than most what's going on inside your brain. Um, so I would suggest just look into it in a very positive and affirming way. I mean, to make sure that you don't um, start reading all those books about what's going to happen if you have ADHD, you'll become an addict or whatever. You know, don't, don't, don't go down those. <laughs> that's a great, that's great advice, Devin. Thank you very much. Um, so, so Susan asked, what was the name of the person who invented the interest Iser that you mentioned? Ah, okay. It's and it. It's a fellow named Joseph Renzulli, and it's it's something that if, it's actually for sale. It's it's through some test some publisher in the U.S. Joseph Renzulli, R-E-N-Z-U-L-L-I. He's at the University of Connecticut Stores campus, S-T-O-R-R-S, and his he and his wife. Are, are both in this, this area. They're researchers in gifted education. They have a summer conference every year on campus where they, they for teachers, a teacher education conference on basically on diverse learners, which is a fabulous program. People from all over the world come to that. Um, and um, Renzulli has uh, several academies that are based on interest-based learning. He has Renzulli Academies, which he has primarily built in poor urban areas. Um, my daughter taught at one for a while, and she said she thought that probably 80% of the kids there had ADHD um, and were learning much, much better when it was targeted toward their interests. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how far that people have been going in the UK with interest-based learning, but it's become quite a movement here in the US. That and the hands-on experience, which is not unlike... Um, unlike some of the Montessori methods, but extended into 
farther up in the curriculum so that you're hands-on building things, um, you know, when you're in high school and university. Yeah, okay. Um, question now from Nina. Um, how strong are correlates between neurodiversity and mental health diagnoses like bipolar and psychosis and borderline personality disorder? Mm -hmm. I don't have those statistics at hand. Um, my work is focused more in the learning area, so less on, on bipolar and, and um, the other um, diagnoses. I do know that bipolar, for some reason, and I don't know why, tends to be more associated with high IQ. It's the one um, psychiatric diagnosis that, that is more IQ related. I mean, I've, I've got to believe that bipolar is associated with creativity. If you've read the books of, um, there's um, an, a woman who has bipolar who's an academic researcher, um, and she's written about her bipolar um, and the flights of creativity when she was in the manic stage were just astonishing. I mean, she, um, so I'm, I'm sure there's an overlap there between creativity and bipolar and pr probably psychosis as well. Uh, but I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing. Okay, no problem. Um, so Roy has asked, we hear quite a lot about high-functioning neurodivergent personalities. However, do you have any information on the numbers of people in prison that are neurodivergent? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, people in prison who are neurodivergent may be high-functioning as well. I don't like that term, high-functioning. It seems very um, judgmental. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you might be intelligent and choose not to function highly. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like it's putting a judgment there. But yes, prisons are full of neurodiverse people, just full. I will forever feel guilty that I, I didn't take a job I was offered um, once to to help prison the prison population um, uh, be assessed and found you know their strengths um, uh, encouraged to grow in in their training programs in prison because that really needs to happen. Um, but yes, no, the rates of ADHD is is like five times the, the normal pop population in in prisons. It's just huge. Um, so yes, the prisons are full of neurodivergent people, and I wonder to what extent that's because they had such horrible experiences with um, their educations and 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 um, families um, because of their differences. So it's it's a, a big problem. 100%. Same, same with the homeless. Um, homeless population tends to be quite neurodiverse. Um, Kirsty asks, you mentioned at the start about Nathaniel still having Asperger's. Once mm -hmm. someone is diagnosed, can, can this change a lot? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, people say that the diagnoses don't come and go, that they ought to be stable. Um, in practice, um, it, a, a person, a child who's evaluated, say, at age six, they have a, a good likelihood of not being um, diagnosed the exact same way five years later. Um, but it might depend partly on the skill of the diagnostician. I have seen things in effect go away enough that they would not fit diagnostic criteria anymore. Now, diagnostic criteria are you know written down in the, the, the US in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM-5. And in the um, 
for the international, the World Health Organization, the international classification of diseases. Um, so those are the two ma manuals that we use to provide formal diagnoses. I've had, I've had a case where I had a boy who was diagnosed with Asperger's and he was told he had, or autism, he was told he had autism when he was about 12 by the psychologist in a very blunt and unsupportive way. And it really ticked this boy off and he decided that he was going to become non-autistic. So he set his mind to training himself to become what he perceived to be a popular normal guy. He joined the football team in high school and became a, a bro, basically, you know, would hang out with the other footballers and, and um, really tried to mold his brain. Now, I, when I met with him, I wasn't sure that that was a good thing because he was faking normal. He was, he was trying to make himself be like other people rather than be himself. But I couldn't diagnose him with autism um, anymore because he just didn't tick off those criteria. But I, but I counseled him that I thought he still had autistic characteristics and that, that he should factor those into his, um, his, his continued growth rather than just sort of denying and, and camouflaging um, himself. So I guess the long answer to your question is, I don't think it really goes away completely, but, um, but with treatments and with working on something, people can reduce their symptoms um, quite, quite dramatically. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, that's pretty much all the questions we have, Devin. Right. Um, right. But that was a fascinating talk. Um, I think people really enjoyed that. Before Good. we before we end the session, um, are there any places you'd like to recommend people to go online? Um, you've got your website there, drdevin.com. Um, you're on Twitter as well. Um, yeah, yeah, I am. I have a whole lot of blogs. Um, if, if anybody's interested in a specific topic, for a while there, I was blogging every week. So there's a lot of blogs on my website. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm happy to try to direct people to resources that they might be interested in. Um, and I, I, I would just encourage everyone to focus on the strengths part. I think we already know enough about the challenges part. And there's a great deal of literature and information out there on how to fix the problems, but very less um, on the strengths um, approach, which is really where if you if you have a quote unquote disability, you probably won't find your future satisfaction in life and career through your weak area. You know, you're probably going to find it through something you're interested in and your strengths. Um, so so as a, for individuals and for guiding children, um, I think it's super, super important to emphasize the strengths side of the equation. Definitely, definitely. Well, Devin, thank you so much. I can tell you put a lot of thought and effort in your pre preparation. That yeah. was, was a really excellent presentation. So thank you. Um, Thanks, if, you if you do have any additional resources that you want to send on, just send like, send me via email, and I'll pass them on to. Will do. Wendy's. Okay. All right. Thank you, everybody. All right. Everybody, Bye. Everybody, we'll see you again at uh, three thirty yeah. for the final final session today. All right. This episode is sponsored by the Weekend University's upcoming Day on Meaning online conference taking place on the 27th of March, 2022. In this half-day event, we'll be exploring how ancient wisdom and modern psychology can be integrated to help you uncover a deep sense of purpose and meaning in life. We'll have talks from three of the world's leading experts on the subject, including Professor Paul Bloom, 
Emily Esfahani Smith and Jeremy Lent. If you're interested in the psychology of meaning and taking an evidence-based approach to building a fulfilling life and also learning how to help others do the same, then this is the event for you. By attending live, you can interact with the speakers in real time, get lifetime access to the recordings, CPD certification, and connect with a community of like-minded people during the talks. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to the link bit.ly forward slash meaning 2022 and enter the code POD when registering. That's POD, all one word, when registering.